Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for that incredible reality that we just, uh, that we just reflected upon, Lord, that you sent your Son to come as a baby to dwell in our midst. And Heavenly Father, I pray that as we begin this uh, Christmas season, I pray that as we uh, go to your word right now, Lord, that you would cause us to stand amazed and to stand in awe of your incredible provision uh, for us, Lord, in sending us uh, your Son, Lord. And so, Father, we pray that you would uh, be, with, uh, be with each of us, Lord, as your word is opened. I pray that you would be with me. I pray for strength and weakness, Lord. I pray, Lord, that your voice would speak through your living and active word, Lord. And so I pray that, that you would, would, would move powerfully, that the same Spirit, God, who inspired John to write these words would now, Lord, fill me and fill each one of us to be able to see and to understand and to receive and to believe, Lord. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Open up your Bibles to uh, John chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers can help you out with that as they're coming up and down the aisle right now. This is the first Sunday of Advent, which is really the beginning of the Christmas series, I want to know when does, when does Christmas season actually begin for you? Does it begin, you know, sometimes after, sometime after Thanksgiving or Halloween when you start to see Christmas decorations in the store? Does it, does it start for you when you watch your first movie about a successful working but unfulfilled uh, career woman who goes home for the holidays? Does it start when you go and get a, a Christmas tree? Does it start when you see eggnog on the shelves for the first time. When does Christmas begin for you? All of us have these different, these different signposts. All of us have these different moments that, that we think, and mom, okay, now, now is the Christmas uh, season. You know, the, the New Testament authors, when they, when they were thinking about Christmas, uh, obviously under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and particularly the authors of the gospel, it's interesting that God used the different personalities and the different experiences of the people who were writing the Bible under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And each of the authors of the gospel uh, start in sort of in a different way. I mean, Matthew, uh, writing predominantly to a Jewish audience, began with a, with a genealogy with a family tree. His, his intention, the Christmas began for him by linking Jesus to uh, King David who is, the sa- who, is, who is the prophesied savior of all of the descendants of Abraham. So Matthew began with this genealogy that worked all the way back. Mark was just always in such a hurry. Mark just gets it done in one verse. He says, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. There's no birth, there's no genealogy, there's no nothing. He comes out right away and says, Jesus is the Son of God in verse 1. In, in Luke, he, he kind of he paints the broader, uh, the, the broader extended family picture. He doesn't begin with Mary and Joseph. He begins with Zachariah and Elizabeth, Mary's relatives, and the birth of Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, and then the unfolding of, uh, of the story with the shepherds uh, and the angels. Now, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those, the, the first three Gospels, they're called the synoptic Gospels. They give a synopsis, an overview of Jesus' 
life. Now, John doesn't fit within that category, and his gospel is a very different kind of gospel, and so you can expect that the way that he approaches Christmas is very, very different. And to We're beginning a series today called Light in the Darkness, the Christmas story from John chapter 1. And what we're going to see today as we begin this this opening section, this prologue to John's gospel, we're going to see that, that John is reflecting on something and rejoicing on something, rejoicing in something. And no matter how you think about Christmas, no matter how Christmas sort of begins with you and, and, and what activities sort of mark the beginning of Christmas, today we need to remember that, that Christmas is a time for us to reflect and Christmas is a time for us to rejoice. Let me read the passage. John chapter 1, I'm going to go from verse 1 down to verse 5. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. If we are going to truly experience a a Christmas, if we are going to follow the Christmas story from John chapter 1, we're going to have to spend some time reflecting. And John begins by challenging us to reflect on the identity of the Word. Reflect on the identity of the Word. Right there in verse 1, it says the Word, the Word, the Word, three times. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And, and this, this word in Greek, it's logos, it's repeated three times, and it's also repeated with the word was. The Word was, the Word was, the Word was. It's, it's explaining who the Word actually is. Is And we're, we're told later down in, in, in verse 14 that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word is, it's, it's Jesus that he's talking about. But he sort of uses this vague language at the beginning to talk about the Word. Now he says, he begins his gospel with blatant, unblushing plagiarism under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Look, at, look how he starts. In the beginning. Okay, that's already taken as a start. That's, that's Genesis chapter That's Genesis chapter 1. I mean, couldn't you come up with something any more original? But no, he's, he's intentionally bringing us back to before the beginning. For John, Christmas doesn't begin at the manger. It doesn't begin with the shepherds or the angels or the magi. No, Christmas for John begins before the beginning of time. He wants to make it clear that the Word, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is in fact eternally pre-existent. That, that He began before the world Began. And it's interesting how John says, in the beginning was the Word. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1, what was God doing in the beginning? He was speaking His Word. And His Word is what caused the whole universe to be created. Ten times in Genesis chapter 1 it says, and God said. He said, let there be light, and there was light. 
He said, let, 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 let there be a sun, let there be a moon, let there be, um, let there be water, let there be earth, let there be sky. All he, he, he used his word in the beginning to create all things. And so for his Jewish readers, John would have, would have really been causing them to, to draw near, that he's going to give an, an, a description, an identity of the, the voice of God, the word of God that spoke the universe into existence. Now, John's readers wouldn't have been exclusively Jewish, though. He also had he also had readers from the Greco-Roman world who didn't just believe in one God who spoke the universe into existence. They believed in multiple gods. And they believed that the gods were sort of flying around up above them and the gods were always at war. And that's why there was, that's why there was all kinds of chaos in, uh, in their world and why things seemed to be so unpredictable all of the time. And even though in, the, in, in Greco-Roman religion, even though there was this acceptance of chaos... They also understood that there was some sort of semblance of order in the, in the world. That the sun always came up in the morning. That, that even though there were wars and even though there were famines and there were droughts, and that's why they prayed to the, you know, the war god and the fertility gods because they were trying to manage all of the chaos, they recognized that apart from all of that, the sun always came up. That when you drop a rock, it always hits the ground. They understood that there were certain laws at work in the universe. There was a certain order and a certain structure. And you know what? The Greek philosophers had a word for this impersonal, invisible force that kind of held the, word, the world together. And that word was the logos, the word. And so, just in the, in, in the opening line of John's gospel, in the beginning was the word. He's taken his Jewish readers who are familiar with the Old Testament, and he's drawn them in. And then he's taken readers who have no familiarity with the Bible at all, but they, they believe in this logos, they believe in this word that upholds the universe. So he draws them in as well, because Jesus Christ as the word is what everyone is looking for. That he is the answer to the ultimate questions of life. In the beginning was the word. Then here's the second was statement about the word. And the word was with God. Jesus was eternally preexistent in the present of his Father. He lived in a relationship. That the, the, the Greek word there is pros. He was toward God. He is facing God the Father, living in relationship with God. Jesus was with God. And he came, this is what Christmas is about, he came to be with us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Why? All for the purpose so that we could go and be where he came from. He was with God, but we are separated from God because of our sin. But Jesus came from being with God to be with us so that he could die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin so that we could go and be with God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And then he says, and the Word was God. He was with God, and he was God. How can both of those things 
coexist? How can he be with God as though God were something other than what he was, but then also that he could be God, that he was God? How can those things fit together? Now our neighbors who are Muslims and Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses would take, would take issue with a, with a verse like this and say, well, that, that doesn't make any sense. Jesus can't be God and also be with God. And so they either reject uh, the, uh, the, the teaching of the New Testament, they reject John chapter 1 uh, altogether, or as Jehovah's Witnesses do, they, they actually retranslate John uh, chapter 1. The, the New World Translation, which is, which is uh, published by uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses, who publish their Watchtower um, um, brochure or magazine just north of us here uh, in Georgetown, make a huge deal about this particular verse. And I'm sure many of us have had a conversation with our friendly neighborhood Jehovah's Witness who knocks on our door or maybe is a co-worker about John chapter 1. And in a Jehovah's Witness Bible, in the New World Translation, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Then it says, and the Word was a God. And the Word was a God. Now, so I, I thought we'd take an opportunity here today to really, let, let's, just, let's just deal with this kind of once and for all. Okay, and so we've got our work cut out for us, okay? We need, we're going to have to put on our thinking caps. We're going to have to roll up our sleeves right now. We're really going to have to uh, pay attention because I, this is a unique opportunity that we have as we're going verse by verse through John chapter 1. I want to make sure that we understand this. I actually put in your handout, this is the first time ever, I put the Greek text for you in your handout so that in the future you can go, if you can keep that in your Bible, if Jehovah's Witness knocks at your door and they tell you what the Greek says, well, you can say, well, I've got the Greek right here. And so, so you, you can... Um, and I, I put a little uh, transliterated uh, version in there for you to be able to uh, uh, pronounce it as well. So here, but here's a couple of things we need to know as a ground world, as ground rules. So this is going to be review for some of uh, for some of us. This is going to be a challenge for other of us. But I just even want to talk in terms of English grammar for a minute. I was my mother was an English teacher, and um, and I hope she'd be proud of what I'm about to do right now. So there is the definite article and an indefinite article in English. The definite article is the word the. The indefinite article is the word a. And that's what, that's what this discussion really is all about. This is what Jehovah's Witnesses get all hung up about. The difference between the and the difference between a. Now, if I were to tell, tell Jermaine, you know what, Jermaine? You're the man! Right? I'm using the definite article, and I'm saying, you're the man, and he's like, Thanks, that's, that's, that's great. But if I go to Jermaine and say, you're a man, he'd be like, I know. You see, it makes a big difference. Just the and a makes a huge difference in meaning. So we need to understand that, that in English grammar, there is a definite article and an indefinite article. Now in Greek, there are 24 different ways to say and articulate the definite article. 24 different, two dozen different ways to say the, depending on all of the other grammar things that are happening in a sentence. 24 ways to say the, there are zero ways to say ah. In Greek. 
The Greek language has a definite article. It does not have an indefinite article. So we, we clear on that so far? Thinking cap's still on? Okay. The next thing I want to show you is the, in English grammar, the relationship between the subject, the verb, and the object. I love this example. The pastor ate the donut. Amen? Amen. The subject is the pastor. The verb is ate and the object is the thing being eaten, the thing that is being acted upon by the, by the subject is always at the end of the sentence, right? You begin with the subject. The pastor is the subject. He's always at the beginning. Now, in Greek, sometimes the subject is at the beginning, but they always add these additional letters for you to be able to know what the subject is. So the subject of a sentence tends to have like an OS at the end. The pastoros ate the donaton. That little O-N at the end is showing that it's an object. The OS shows that it's a subject. So in Greek, it could be all mixed up like this. You could say the donaton ate the pastoros. Now, for an English reader, you would think, oh my goodness, is this like some sort of horrible nightmare after eating half a dozen? No, no, no. Because donaton has the O-N at the end, even though it's at the front, of the, the front of the sentence, you know it's the object. But because they don't have exclamation marks, because they don't have underlining or bold, if it was a real surprise that what the pastor ate was the donuts... You would put the word donut at the front, but put donaton there. You put, a, put an, an O-N ending so that you knew that it was the object, even though it was at the front of the sentence. Are you following me? All right. So now, if you look at the passage, the, there in Greek, I'm going to read sort of the bold middle line. An arche and hologos, in the beginning was the word. Kai hologos and proston theon. So there's the word God, and there's the definite article. Ton is one of the 24 different ways to say the. Theon is the word for God. It has an O-N ending, so it's an, it's an object. So logos is the subject. It has an O-S. The word was with ton theon, was with God. God is like the object. But then the, this is this last part that gets tricky. Kai theos and ho logos. Now Jehovah's Witnesses make a huge deal of the fact that there's no definite article in front of theos. And notice that theos has an O-S ending, not an O-N ending. Now there's... there's there's layers to grammatical rules, aren't there? And there's all kinds of nuances. And what John is doing here is what, it's similar if we would continue to use the donut illustration, it would be like saying, donatos ate the pastoros. And in Greek, sometimes when you're wanting to show a close association between two things, you don't isolate them as a subject and an object. You can make them both subjects. But in order to make it clear which subject is the actual subject, you keep a definite article on the one and remove the definite article on the other. This is the, you can see this all over the Greek language. Because 
So yes, it's true. There, it, you can agree with a Jehovah's Witness. They say, there's no definite article at the end of John chapter 1 when it refers to God. You can say, yes, I totally agree. I have it right here. But that is actually irrelevant because within Greek grammar, when you remove the definite article, that is, that is simply stating the close relationship between the two things that are being uh, discussed. Also notice that John wanted to put God at the beginning of the sentence. The literal translation would be God was the word. But the word is the one that has the definite article. So the word is what is being described as God. But because it's so shocking, because it's so amazing that Jesus is God, God is put to the front of the sentence. And the definite article uh, is, uh, is not there. Now, if, you, if the Jehovah's Witnesses really cared about the definite article, then they would have to apply that same principle, that same rule. If there's no definite article, it can't be referring to the God, it must be a God. Then that would mean that the way they read John chapter uh, 1 would be a lot different. If you look at John chapter 1 verse 6, where it says there was a man sent from God, the New World Translation should translate it, there was a man sent from a God. But they don't. And then verse 12 of John chapter 1. But who all did receive him who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of Agod. No definite article there. But they don't translate it that way. John chapter 1 verse 13. Who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of Agod. John chapter 18. No one has ever seen Agod. The only Agod who was at the Father's side, he has made him known. That's ridiculous. They, they never follow this, this rule about the definite article anywhere else other than chapter 1, verse 1. And why is that? Because they don't believe that Jesus is God. They believe that Jesus is Michael the archangel. And so it's not a commitment to the Greek language and accurate translation that is causing them to translate John chapter 1. It's their pre-decided uh, theology that is causing them uh, to miss. A translate that passage. Are you with me? Kind of, yeah. That, that, that's a, I'll settle for kind of. I'll settle for kind of. So the word was with God and the word was God. John is being very intentional in, his, in the way he is ordering the words here to show that Jesus is equal with the Father but not identical with the Father. The Bible teaches, the, the whole teaching of the New Testament describes God as there being one God who eternally exists in three persons. This is also true of the, of the Holy Spirit who's going to make an appearance later in the, in the chapter. The theologians refer to this concept as the Trinity. And of course, the Trinity, the, that word is not in the Bible, but it is a helpful word. It's taking the word for one, unity, and the word for three, tri, like triple or tricycle, and bringing them together to say that God is three in one. A word like Trinity helps us avoid an error like believing there are three different gods. There aren't three different gods. There is only one God. But it also prevents us from being so committed to this idea that there is only one God that we would think that when, that when 
That God the Father is, is also God the Son. He just changes form sometimes, and then sometimes he likes to be uh, the Holy Spirit that he's always changing. That is an error as well. The Trinity protects us from that kind of error. You might be saying, well, Ted, can you give me an illustration to, uh, to help me understand the Trinity? Nope, no, I can't. I cannot. Uh, every, every illustration that I've ever heard about the Trinity is, is just unsatisfying. Really, it just leans to the threeness, or it leans to the oneness. And so I'm not going to give you uh, any kind of uh, illustration, but simply the Bible teaches there is one and only one true living God. This God eternally exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three persons are completely equal in attributes and each with the same divine nature. While each person is fully and completely God, the persons are not Identical. That's what the New Testament teaches about, uh, about who God is, about who Jesus is. So we're one verse in. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is the Word. He was there in the beginning. If you want to know who God is, you need to get to know Jesus Christ. Jesus said later, I mean, even if Jehovah's Witnesses were not going to acknowledge what John chapter 1 verse 1 clearly says, Jesus says in John 14, 9, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And Jesus said in John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. Jesus repeatedly said that he was God, that he was one with the Father. Then in verse 2 it says that he was in the beginning with God, repeating what he had just said for emphasis. And then in verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Notice he makes a positive statement and then a negative statement. All things were made through him. And then he says, and without him was not anything made that was made. What's he saying here is that Jesus made everything. Everything that fits into the category of being created had been created by Jesus Christ. So it is impossible then to say that Jesus Christ is a created being, that Jesus Christ is an angel. Because everything that was created was created by Jesus. And so, listen, you don't have to know Greek to, to refute what a Jehovah's Witness has to say about Jesus. You just need to keep reading. Just read to verse 3. Jesus created everything. He didn't create himself. He created everything that was created. And he says there is nothing that was made that he did not make. But let's stop worrying about Jehovah's Witnesses. Let's stop talking about them and their false teaching. Let's talk about you for a minute. Where do you stand as it relates to who Jesus is? Because ultimately that's important. We can talk about them out there. But what do you believe about Jesus Christ? Do you believe that he is the eternally preexistent son of God? Do you believe that he came to this earth to suffer and die for our sins and to raise from the dead to give us the gift of eternal life? Do you believe that you are one of those beings that has been created by him, the uncreated one? Do you understand that he created you and therefore he owns you? Are you living as though he is master and lord of your life? 
He is the word of God. Are you hearing him? Are you listening to him? He is the ruler of all things. Does he have your attention? And this Christmas season, if we're going to reflect on the identity of the word, we need to make sure that we are opening our Bibles regularly, spending time with God, allowing him to speak to us, and spending time in prayer, speaking to him about what's happening in our lives. We've got to reflect on the identity of the word. And then secondly, we must rejoice in the victory of the light. We must rejoice in the victory of the light. So John calls Jesus the word, and now he's going to refer to him as the light. The same grammatical uh, construction in Greek that he used uh, above, he uses here in verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It says, in him was life. Again, no one gave Jesus life. In him was life. So he is, he is the, the author of life. Uh, Pastor Chris uh, shared with me this week that he, he sees John chapter 1. It's, it's, like, it's like the table of contents for the rest of the book. And he's referencing all of these key words and all of these phrases and all of these images that are going to come up later on uh, in, in the book. And so this concept of Jesus being life. In him was life. You know, Jesus is going to talk about this a lot as as we go through the Gospel of John. John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the, say it, life. In him was life. And then there's this, this other analogy that's going to be so important in the Gospel of John. It, the life was the light of men. Jesus said in, uh, in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. He said, I am the light of the world. This is a, going to be a major theme in the gospel of John. This is also a major theme of all of the prophecies leading up to uh, Jesus and his birth. Remember Isaiah chapter 9, uh, verse 2, that said, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. And in Luke chapter 1 verses 78 and 79, the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is the light this is, the, this is the fulfillment of all of these prophecies. The people who were dwelling in darkness. A light has shone on them. And so verse 4 and makes it very, very clear what we need. Jesus has come to, to help us, to rec- rescue us. And he has come as life and he has come as light. And so when we reflect on the identity of the word... We also really understand our own identity. If Christ is the life, then we need to understand that we, apart from Christ, are spiritually dead. We, we, we may be physically alive, but we are dead spiritually. We are disconnected from God. 
And also we are living in spiritual darkness and Jesus is the light. So we are spiritually dead and we are spiritually dark. And we need Christ's light and we need Christ's life. And so this Christmas season we remember who Jesus is and we remember what he did. And then verse 5 says, The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The light shines. Remember back in verse 1, John used that phrase, in the beginning. And he's talking about the, those, those, those days before creation. And when God created the world, God said, let there be light. And so John begins in Genesis chapter 1 at the original a creation. But now in, in verse 4, he's talking about a new creation. And the new creation, just as Jesus was at the center and the cause of the, of the first creation, the physical, physical creation, Jesus Christ is at the center of this new creation, this, this humanity 2.0, this earth 2.0, this fresh start that God has planned and put in motion at Christmas time, the light shone in the darkness, just as God said, let there be light. Now God has sent his Son to be light in the darkness. Not a physical and visual darkness, but a spiritual darkness. The Apostle Paul sums this up so beautifully in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, one of my favorite verses. For God who said... Let light shine out of darkness. That's referring to, to Genesis. That's referring to the original physical creation. Then it talks about a spiritual recreation. Has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is a, a new creation that God has Started. The light is, listen, our world is spiritually dead. Our world is spiritually dark. But look at verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is not some dualistic yin-yang, light side of the force, dark side of the force, always in balance and fighting against one another, and they're, they're both have the same kind of power. That's not what's being described here. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness could not overcome it. The light is stronger. The light is superior. The light wins. That's what's being described here. And listen, there are times when it seems like the darkness wins. I mean... John is talking here in John chapter John chapter one. It's all very um, it's all very theological and 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 philosophical. But when the rubber hit the road in Jesus' life, it seemed a lot of the times like the darkness was winning. I mean, he was born and nobody seemed to notice. A handful of shepherds, some foreign travelers from a distant land came, but no one seemed overly concerned. It seemed like darkness was winning. None of the rulers or authorities took notice. Well, Herod took notice and he wiped out all of the children in a particular region. It seemed like darkness was winning. Jesus got up to preach his first sermon in Luke chapter 4 and he reads from Isaiah 61 and he's encouraging the people and five minutes later they've grabbed him and they want to throw him off a cliff. It seemed like darkness was winning. I mean, he would heal people but then he'd get in trouble because he did it on the wrong day of the week. 
It seemed like darkness was, was winning. I mean, the, the biggest highlight was when people were waving palm branches and acknowledging that he was king and singing songs and saying Hosanna. But a few days later, that same crowd is yelling, crucify him. It always seemed like the darkness was winning. And then they, they took him and they stripped him and they nailed him to a cross. And he suffocated to death and bled for our sin. And then they buried him in a tomb and rolled a stone. It seemed like darkness was winning. And maybe you feel like in your life, you look at the news feed on your phone and you see the things that are happening in our world and it feels like darkness is winning. Or you look at your own life and you look at how you keep falling back into the same sinful habits or these same horrible, tragic circumstances always seem to come and overwhelm you. And it feels like darkness is winning. But we need to remember, loved ones, what John chapter 1 verse 5 says. Even if we don't recognize it at first, the light has shone in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. That stone rolled away. As we sang, bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again, light wins. The darkness will not overcome. And that is why we can have hope at Christmas time as we reflect on who Jesus is, as we rejoice on his ultimate victory so that we can look, because Christ has won the greatest battle at all of all, we can look at the small battles of our lives whether we feel like we're winning or losing, we know that that ultimate battle has been won and we can have courage and grace to be able to face whatever darkness has in store because darkness cannot overcome that light that has shone in our hearts in the face of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's bow our heads together. King Jesus, we love you. We rejoice in you as the ruler of all things. You are eternally pre-existent, one with the Father. And Lord, we want to spend this season reflecting on who you are and rejoicing in what you've done. God, thank you that in you we have victory over sin and over death. Thank you that although we were spiritually dead, you breathed life in us through your Holy Spirit. Thank you that although we were spiritually dark, the light of the gospel has shone in our hearts and brought about transformation. Lord, we pray that you would work powerfully in our midst for your glory. Lord, we love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.